0: These three Lord's Day mornings, we have been in what scholars call Luke's Great interpolation that long section from a portion of chapter 9 to a portion of chapter 18, in which the Gospel of Luke contains a large amount of material not contained in either Mark or Matthew, the other two synoptic Gospels, and not in the Gospel of John either, for that matter. And... uh, we do the same this morning with the parable that we're about to read. In order to understand that parable, however, we do need to read the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, which you do not have before you in uh, your order of service. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It is important for you to remember that the chapter began with two short parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. We come now to the third parable in this set, the parable of the lost son. However, your editors, the editors of your modern translations of the Bible, didn't dare call it, the parable of the lost son because it has forever been known and loved as the parable of the prodigal son. Sometimes terminology simply can't be changed. You look in your NIV or your ESV Bible and you will find that in Genesis chapter 6 we still speak of Noah's ark even though nobody calls what Noah built an ark any longer. People simply would not hear of Noah's barge or Noah's boat. And it's the same here. But we will read in verse 24 and again in the last verse of the chapter that the father says the same thing about his son as uh, as was said previously by the two figures in the two short parables that began the chapter. He was lost and now he is found. When John Newton describes his own salvation in the hymn Amazing Grace by saying, I once was lost, but now am found. He's using the language of Luke chapter 15. When we speak of unbelievers as being lost, we are using the language of this chapter, and that's right. This is all about salvation. Who needs it? Who finds it? And how it comes to pass and why? Why? This is the best known, the best loved of all the Lord's parables. It has been called the pearl or the crown of the biblical parables. For endless ages, it has been known because of its magnificent depiction of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been known as the Evangelium in Evangelio, the gospel in the gospel. So we begin to read verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, it's very important for you to remember throughout the parable that the father had two sons. The parable is about both sons, not only about the prodigal, as we will see. The first two parables featured only Two principal characters, though they were prompted by the grumblings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we read in in verse 1, here the older brother represents the mindset of the Pharisees who were complaining because the Lord was welcoming and having fellowship with people they judged unworthy. The parable is about that as well. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Kenneth Bailey is a missionary and biblical scholar who spent most of his adult life in the Middle East. He's written some fascinating studies of the Lord's parables, interpreting them according to the way a Middle Eastern person, and in particular a Middle Eastern peasant, would hear them and understand them. Bailey's work has been transformative in the understanding of this particular parable we are considering this morning. Bailey points out that there is a whole set of assumptions hidden in these opening verses And that every Middle Easterner would read the story according to those assumptions. The young man has shown shown appalling disrespect for his father, for the honor of his family, and for his community. The family and the village would have been aghast at behavior that amounted to saying that he wished his father were dead. Something that is simply never said in the Middle East. What the younger son did, in other words, was unthinkable and repugnant. He had not simply violated the standards of behavior expected of a son. He had broken his relationship with his father. He'd proved himself a radically selfish young man, a man without honor. What the Middle Easterner also notices, however, is that the father granted the son his request. He certainly didn't have to, he could have simply said that his son would have to wait until his father's death in order to inherit. Most fathers would have said exactly that. Here, the father, in effect, lets the sinner go his own way. You begin to see how perfectly the parable is describing the rebellion of God's creatures in God's own world. What is more, in a culture that measured wealth by land, the young man proved himself as well a fool. By turning it all into cash quickly, taking the great loss he would have had to take in order to take the money and run. Everyone in the village would have heard what he had done and that by sundown. Most Middle Easterners who hear the story are also wondering about the older son. Why did he not intervene? Why did he not seek to mediate between the father and his brother and so restore the relationship? The older son, in their view, is already complicit in the disaster that has overtaken this family. They also expect that the father at some point would disown, formally disown his son. It is what any Middle Eastern father would have been expected to do. What they do not expect is for the son ever to return. Not only the family, but the entire village would refuse to receive him. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. As so often in life, the realization of one's actual need does not come quickly. Being broke during a famine was still not enough to bring this fellow to his senses. He still thought he could solve his problem. Verse 15 is a timeless picture of what is happening in our modern culture. We're always sure that the solution to our problem is the next thing we're going to try. And very often, that next thing has about as much chance of delivering us to the peace and pleasure we seek than did this man's work in the pigsty. Feeding pigs was a job no Jew and no Middle Easterner would have ever wanted to do. As Bailey notes, the Middle East still detests the pig. The Muslim and the Jew by the dictates of religion, the Christian for the most part by choice. It is a measure of the man's desperation that he was willing to do even this. Nothing could be more degrading for a Jew Than to be taking care of a Gentile's pigs. This is the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. His desperate circumstances have finally brought him to the realization that there's only one place where he's likely to get the help he needs, and that was with his father, the very father he had so terribly betrayed. He knew he had forfeited all his rights, but he could could appeal to his father's mercy. He would ask to be made simply a day laborer, the lowest of the three classes of farm laborers in that time. The fact that he imagined that he could do so after all he had done is some indication that he he knew his father. He knew what sort of man he was. He knew his character. He could count on him at least to be a merciful man. I I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The son had returned in rags, but he was now to be dressed in the best of the best, given sandals when servants typically went barefoot, given a ring, which in all likelihood reflects the fact that he has been restored to the family, and now was to be the guest of a guest of honor at a great feast thrown for the whole village, as we will see. The killing of a fattened calf was reserved only for the most special of occasions. Meat was rarely consumed at meals in first century Palestine. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost And is found, and they began to celebrate. The banquet restores the son not only to the immediate family, but to the village, the larger community that would have been acutely aware of his treason and would have been disgusted by it and by him. Now, his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. To a Middle Eastern ear, that the son was in the field means that he was supervising his workers. No head of a family with servants, a family wealthy enough to have a fattened calf to kill for special occasions, with festive robes for celebrations, and a home large enough for a village festivity, I say, no man in a family like that would be doing manual labor himself in the field. This was a man with a lot. This was a man of substance, a man of some wealth. As an older brother, he would have received a significantly larger inheritance than his younger brother. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. His refusal to enter the banquet in the Middle East would have been regarded as a grave insult both to his father's guests and to his father. He was furious about what his father had done. But in a very significant and ironic twist, the insider has become the outsider. The older brother contrived without leaving home to be further away from his father than his brother had been in the heathen pigsty. The son who remained at home was now inside enjoying the feast with his family. The older brother is the Pharisee, the scribe the unbelieving Jew. As one great scholar of the parables remarked, what a mournful commentary on the book of Acts are the words, he would not go in. The whole Jewish race refusing to go in, to come home to the Father. Very clearly here the point is made. It is the Pharisees who are standing outside while God is rejoicing in the repentance and the return home of the tax collectors and the sinners. The sinful spirit always manufactures a slight and always finds its excuses. It is also essentially invariably hypocritical. This man had condemned his brother for demanding his rights, but now demands them for himself. The obedience of which he was so proud before, he now unwittingly reveals to have been motivated by self-interest. Not by love, not by gratitude. What is more, he seems to care nothing for the fact that his refusal to enter the feast amounts to a public insult to his father, as any Middle Eastern reader immediately recognizes. The point is that the elder brother wants the younger brother disowned. He wants him to be punished forever for his sins. We're back to the scribes and the Pharisees. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. As always the case with the self-righteous, he imagined the worst about his brother. He didn't know that he had consorted with prostitutes. How could he? He was imagining the worst. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The parable is left unfinished. We don't know how the older brother responded to his father's appeal. The Lord was addressing a group of religious, self-righteous, self-satisfied sinners who opposed his message, opposed his ministry to the so-called sinners of the culture. He was telling them in no uncertain terms that this was why he ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. He was motivated by mercy, by loving concern for needy people. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or, what he really means, he did not, call, did not come to call those who think themselves righteous. sinners to repentance. So much of the church has spent its energies calling the righteous to repentance. And it will never happen. The question is left unanswered because the Lord's hearers or readers must answer it for themselves. Father in heaven, we have before us one of the most memorable and marvelous and deep and incredibly insightful depictions of human life, its problem, and its salvation. Write this word upon our hearts that we might live from it every day for the rest of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Ian Tate, an English pastor who was a longtime family friend of uh, my parents and, my, and indeed myself when I was a young adult, had a clever three-part outline of the parable of the prodigal son. He called the first section sick of home, the second section homesick, and the third section home. But of course, that's the story of only one of the brothers. There are two in the parable and the second is as essential to its point to call the parable the prodigal the parable of the prodigal son mistakes its meaning in more than just one way the fact that this parable described in advance the story of the life and experience of so many people is a testament to the genius of the lord we have a picture of man in sin, but both kinds of sin. There is first the timeless picture of the prodigal young man or woman who leaves the stuffy confines of home for the exciting world of freedom, sensual pleasure, and the pursuit of worldly experience and success, only to discover that the paradise they imagined was in fact a pigsty. Nowadays, Because no matter how destitute they become, they all somehow still have a cell phone they can call to ask if they can come home. They don't have to show up unannounced as did this young man. And then there are the self-righteous, secure in their own morality and goodness, shaking their heads at all the others. The homosexuals or the homophobes. The promiscuous or the sexually repressed. The tax and spend liberals or the heartless conservatives. The advocates of abortion are those who would refuse a woman her right to choose. To the self-righteous, it doesn't make any difference what side you're on. What matters is that superior in your own sense of goodness and righteousness you are looking down your nose at the other and for everyone who at last comes to himself or to herself the amazing thing about the parable and its depiction of the human condition is that one sees himself or herself not in one son or the other but in both always in both The one who comes to himself realizes that he is both a profligate, a self-assured at first person whose conduct in fact he or she discovers to have been immoral, corrupt, lawless, and disgraceful, and a self-righteous prig whose conduct has been hypocritical and insolent and supercilious and disdainful and angry and arrogant. This masterpiece is proof if proof were needed, of how penetrating is the Lord's delineation of human character, attitude, and outlook. The fact is the father lost both of his sons, one in a foreign country and the other behind a barricade of self-righteousness. Only one son that we know of was ever found, the one who came to himself and threw threw himself upon the mercy of his father. The fact is this is where everyone is in one place or the other more or less in the pigsty or looking down on those in the pigsty until he or she comes home hoping against hope that the Father will welcome and forgive such a stupid and such a self-righteous person as he or she has been. And how many there have been who have come to themselves in just exactly that way and in their own words have come to God and said in the marvelous words of Ray Palmer's hymn take me O my father take me take me save me through thy son that which thou wouldst have me make me let thy will in me be done Long from thee my footsteps straying thorny proved the way I trod. Weary come I now and praying, take me to thy love, my God. The story of Christian salvation. In what is still the greatest work ever written on the parables of the Lord, that of Richard Trench, the Anglican Archbishop of Dublin in the 19th century, we find this reflection on the single sinful choices that men make and their consequences in their lives. The father did not refuse his younger son's demand, and such, too, is the dealing of God. He has constituted man a spiritual being with a will and when his, servants, when his service no longer appears a perfect freedom, the man, <clears throat> and the man promises himself something better elsewhere, he is allowed to make the trial. He shall discover, if need be, by the most painful proof, that the only true freedom is freedom in God, that to depart from him is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one and one gracious master for a thousand imperious tyrants and lords. Francis Schaeffer used to say the same thing to people who came to Labrie in the 1960s and the 1970s to find out about Christianity. They would hear the arguments, they would hear the testimonies, but at last they would refuse to come in. And Dr. Dr. Schaeffer's response to them was, well, you'll have to ride your tiger. You'll have to find out if you can find that freedom and that fulfillment and that salvation in some other way in a world like this. But be careful. Be careful that your choice doesn't consume you before you have a chance to think again. And so it was as well with the older son. His sin made a miserable slave of him as well. As we can see as we observe him standing outside, unable to rejoice in the blessing bestowed upon his brother, gnashing his teeth in anger, unable to enjoy the harmony of the family now restored, unable to bask in the great blessing it was to be the son of a father like that, instead in churlish selfishness, stewing, because he wanted to be first. First always, first in every way. And the only way he could be first was to have his brother sent away. I entitled this sermon, A Picture Worth a Thousand Words. But what is the picture? Every great artistic representation of the parable of the prodigal son that I know features understandably the prodigal son. But is he really the central character? Not if there are really two sons in the story, not if the second son is the real interest of the Lord, speaking as he is to the Pharisees and the scribes, not if the only character who deals with both sons is the father. Now the picture worth the thousand words is the picture of the father, and there isn't but one, but there are two pictures of the father in the parable, and they are the heart of the story. And of the history of human life. The first is that of the father welcoming home his son. Every convention of Middle Eastern life is violated by the father in the scene. Watch as Kenneth Bailey paints the picture of this father for you. (coughs) In the Middle East, (coughs) excuse me, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. It is safe to assume that he has not run anywhere for any purpose in 40 years. No villager over the age of 25 ever runs. But now the father races down the road. The word Luke uses for run in verse 20 is the word elsewhere used in the New Testament for running races in the arena. <clears throat> to do so he must take <clears throat> excuse me he must take the front edge of the row of his robes in his hand like a teenager and when he does his legs show in what is considered a humiliating posture all of this according to the convention of the time should be painfully shameful and embarrassing for him but such is the father's love such is his joy at seeing his son returning. Such is his readiness to assure his son of his welcome. And that he has nothing to fear. That the father forsakes all interest in his reputation. And races to greet his son. We might have expected even a loving father. To be severe at least at first. Either to test his son's repentance. Or to ensure that he fully appreciated the enormity of his crimes. But this father races to his son, hugs him, and kisses him. The welcome is immediate and unqualified. The father is just overjoyed that his son is home. It's important that we appreciate this as those who first heard the parable would have. It's the behavior of the father in the story that is so surprising, so dramatic, and so unexpected, even shocking. We're inclined to take what the Father did as a matter of course, not only because we are so used to the parable, but because we call it and think of it as the parable of the prodigal son. It's all about the son. A medieval commentator, writing in an age when people advertised themselves publicly as penitents and gloried in outward demonstrations of their repentance, faulted the younger son for not insisting that his father place him among his servants and not yet receive him back as his son. But there's nothing of this in the Bible. It's the father's right to welcome whom he will how he will. Plenty of people have come to God thinking that however hard it may prove to be to work as one of God's servants, it has to be better than the miserable slavery to the world that they have endured. But what they discover was that what God promises and what God gives is not a job, but a place in the family. Not an income or mere sustenance, but the perfection of life forever. The son doesn't come back to a diminished place in the family he once belonged to as a son. He comes back into the family, period. To be sure, many have misunderstood this picture of the father's welcome. They have argued that this must be the whole gospel. God forgave his son because his son had repented of his sin. Where is the cross in any of this, they ask? Muslims understand the story in just this way. The boy was saved. He didn't need a savior. There was no need for an atonement, for a death on a cross. The sinner needed only his father's merciful heart. But that's not only to misunderstand the nature of parables, which can hardly be expected to make every point at once, but to miss the fact that no Middle Easterner misses. Namely, that the father, in fact, has subjected himself to shame, embarrassment, ignominy for the sake of his son. It is the father who is made to look ridiculous before his fellow villagers. It's the father whose conduct raises the eyebrow. The cross is not the teaching of this parable, but is very much the implication of it. The father has suffered the loss of a son... He has suffered the public humiliation of a son's indifference to him. He suffers again by exposing himself to ridicule to secure the re-entrance of his son into his family. And is that not the cross? Is that not what our Heavenly Father and his son endured for us? Public humiliation and ridicule for our reconciliation. This is the first picture. The father racing down the road like a schoolboy to welcome his son. And the second is like it. Here we see the same father standing outside his home pleading with his older son to join the party. For the father to leave the banquet would be highly unusual and embarrassing. The guests would might very well have felt insulted at the suggestion that the father had something better to do than entertain them at the party to which he had invited them. Most fathers of that time and place were they likewise informed that their eldest son was standing outside in a, in a snit, refusing to come in, an insult to the guests itself. He should have been greeting the guests as well as the father most fathers would have been livid. Think of another Middle Eastern scene painted for us in the Bible when Queen Vashti refused to appear at the king's banquet. The king was enraged. It was never to see her again. If the father learned what was happening, everyone else would have as well and just as quickly. Nothing remains a secret in village life. The father was now being humiliated by his older son as he had been humiliated by his younger son. This father is looking more and more like a boob. And once again, the father does the utterly unexpected. He endures the shame and humiliation in order to seek reconciliation with his older son. As Bailey imagines the scene it is almost impossible to convey the shock that must have reverberated throughout the banquet when the father deliberately left his guests, humiliated himself before all of them, and went out to the courtyard to plead with his son to do what every son knew perfectly well he ought to be doing. And once there... He gently pled with his son to rejoice with him in the prodigal's return, to believe him when he assures him of his love, and to remember all that the father rejoices to share with him as his firstborn son. Many years ago, one of my sisters became engaged to be married. The engagement was eventually broken to the immense relief of our family. But at the time, my parents threw a grand party to celebrate the engagement. Family, friends, folk from the church were invited. It was to be a very festive celebration. But for some reason, I can no longer remember, her fiancé got his nose out of joint, and my sister had to step outside and plead with him to come to his own engagement party. There's something profoundly pathetic about that scene. A woman pleading with her fiancé to come into his own engagement party. What will people think? How humiliating. Well, something just like that was happening here. But in this immortal parable, it is God himself in that pathetic and humiliating position pleading... When he should not have to plead. Others looking on. Who must have thought him a sad. Pathetic figure. Two pictures. Brilliantly conceived. Beautifully painted. Both are of a father. Who shows himself utterly forgetful of himself. In order to seek and find his two lost sons. See him racing down the road, holding his robes up so that he doesn't doesn't stumble over them, hurrying to assure the no-account brat of his son of his undying love. See him outside his house, patiently pleading with his prig of an older son to remember how much he is loved. Two pictures which between them contain the problem and the hope of the world. It's only hope. A loving, seeking, welcoming God whose love for his lost sons is so much greater than his love for his own reputation, his own dignity, his own self-respect. The parable of the lost sons, as it ought to be called, is in fact the parable of the father who seeks and finds. Luther's, Martin Luther's artist friend, Albrecht Durer, in a noble act of penitence, put his own head and his own face on his famous portrait of the prodigal son. But I am unaware of any painter who has ever put his head or his face on the figure of the older son. Can you imagine doing that? Were you a great painter? Would you do that? We prefer the prodigal son screw-ups like us love the thought that the Father will welcome us no questions asked. But it hurts more, much more, to see ourselves in the self-righteous Son, however much you and I are just as often Him as we are the prodigal. Can you see Have you seen the Father lumbering down the road, panting from his unaccustomed exercise, robes held up, white hairy legs uncovered for all to see, and all to welcome you? You. Has the Father ever stood before you pleading with you to remember how much he loves you? and what he has given to you. Do you understand this parable? You understand it if you know you are lost and either desperate to be found or have already been found. Sick of home. Homesick. Home. Beautiful indeed. But the older brother's problem is perhaps the more difficult to solve. His viewpoint, after all, is what the Lord was addressing in the three parables in Luke 15. What freedom and what happiness if only the older older brother would say what we hope he did say, finally, at last. Father, forgive me. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have behaved worse than my younger brother who I condemned so self-righteously. Of course I will come into the banquet, hug and kiss my brother as you did, and tell all the guests how happy we are to have him home. And I'll tell them something else. What an astonishing privilege it is to have a father like mine. Amen.